the family meal was at the hearth. That was the center of the constituting ritual of the family. And yeah. it just made me think of like, you know, sitting there having dinner in front of the television, having TV dinners and how yeah. <laughs> then sharing these moments of like, you know, like, you know, <clears throat> things happening on television that everybody remembers and talks about the next day. And that becomes the, the central orientation. The binding. Part, the binding. The binding factor. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and now, unfortunately, now we're even more fragmented than that. Yeah. Right. Now, now we have a whole different, we have a definition of identity that is at 180 degrees from what it was for the rest of human history. Father Stephen DeYoung, what a pleasure to have you on the show here. A pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for showing up. Yeah. And so we're into, we're getting towards the end of our second episode in As Iron Sharpens Iron now. Uh, we've been talking about manhood and masculinity, especially in this context of this word patriarchy and what does that mean? And it's been quite a journey of discovery for me. Um, and I've left the most difficult thing to the last here, which is basically what I'm going to bring to you is this idea of conflict, violence, war. Um, and how do we understand this in an Orthodox Christian perspective? Uh, and I know you've written a book about the subject, God is a Man of War. Uh, and I've been reading as much as I could of that. And I've also watched a little bit of material of you talking about it. Uh, and there's still some things that I, I, I just, hard to hold these different ideas in our minds sometimes, right? It's like this, this perspective shift. So um, looking forward to diving into that with you as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I wrote I wrote that book because I had in one week two people, two completely different unrelated people email me and say, "What's a good book dealing with violence and warfare in the Old Testament from an orthodox perspective?" And I couldn't come up with a good answer. So I said, "Well, I guess I'll have to write one." <laughs> I have noticed so, that you're quite thorough when you do decide to address an issue. When you think there's a need, then you uh, normally take it. So yeah, what I was thinking is we could start off just by like kind of setting the scene. So I'm sitting here in Denmark, in Europe, uh, and and we're definitely things shifted quite radically for you know our comfortable lives of ease and you know everything just going great. Uh, not so long ago, where suddenly there's like this there's a very violent armed conflict probably hundreds of thousands of people killed already. My church is filled up with Ukrainians, Russians, Belarusians, all, uh, all together as well. So it's very, very much in our, it, it's it's growing on the agenda and it's hard to know exactly how to address these, these questions. Um, and there's so much people that are very sensitive about it as well. Um, so that's the kind of context. And I know your, your normal wage, if a lot of people will know you from, of course, Lord of Spirits podcast, you guys kind of like start with the question or an area and then you say, yeah. okay, well, let's go back to basics. And so that's yeah. what I was hoping we could do as well today. Absolutely. Um, Although we don't need to go back to the Neolithic era necessarily. <laughs> we could <laughs> go back yeah. quite that far. But the Old Testament, right? So th that's the basic idea that I've been looking at. or the, and the, I, I think your book also really tries to address is that we have a difficulty. Maybe this was a part of like Nietzsche's kind of complaint about the Christianity that was around him at this at, at his time was that uh, we have this beautiful idea of like Christianity is all about being nice and sweet and kind to each other. And we should just turn the other cheek. And um, then as soon as these violent things happen, then we have a really hard time of knowing exactly how to understand them both outside in the world, but in ourselves as well. And so what your book is really trying to look at is how to go back to uh, understanding 
what were the authors of the Old Testament trying to get and portray, and how does that actually be integrated with the New Testament today? Yeah, yeah, and and Nietzsche is actually a good example because he did kind of the inverse of what had been happening in Europe up until him, yeah. uh, because over the course of the 18th and 19th century, uh, you get basically a biblical studies predominated by European Protestants, especially German uh, Protestants, and very much the birth of liberal, what's been commonly called liberal theology. Uh, out of that, which did very much go in that other direction, almost taking it to a sort of Marcionite extreme of, you know, this Old Testament stuff, this isn't even the same God, right, as, as the God we see in the New Testament and rejecting it, um, we have to be honest and say a, a lot of those Central European scholars were also influenced a bit by anti-Semitism in that, right, with the wanting to make the New Testament superior to the old and get rid of its Jewish roots. Mm -hmm. um, and Nietzsche kind of is instructive because he does the opposite move and that could be a temptation to be kind of reactionary about it where he said he basically agrees with their presupposition that this is presenting two different views of god he just likes the old testament one better yeah, yeah. right <laughs> he likes the virile like you know <laughs> yeah. he's like this is the this is the kind of yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not this mamby pamby new testament business right yeah. um yeah, and so those have in some way set up the poles um, around which these kinds of things are discussed. You get an approach that tries to either sort of neuter the Old Testament in, in one of various ways, right? Either that stuff didn't really happen or... Figurative or literally. Yeah, this, this reflects, you know, the human view of God, but not really God and sort of undermines then the value of the Old Testament for Christians. Um, or you get on the other side, like, no, going and slaughtering thousands of Philistines, this is a wonderful and good thing. And we ought to go take out today's Philistines, however I define them, you know, in, in the same way, you know. Yeah. Um, and both of those are problems. <laughs> both of those are failures to really understand what's going on and to apply that to uh, to the situations we face today. Yeah. So that's been, for me, a massive insight is like reading the Bible. I grew up in a, you know, what you could call a Pente uh, yeah, Pentecostal, fairly uh, fundamentalist church in many ways, very conservative. Uh, and we read the Bible, you know, like you would read a, a description of reality or a science textbook as well, basically. So that's what I kind of had a really hard time dealing with and, and accepting. And, and so this idea of needing to reclaim, you you have also a book called The Religion of the Apostles, right? It's, it's like trying to understand how did they read the Bible? How did they understand it? Also based on the texts of, of that time that were read alongside the Bible, um, which still uh it seems like a, a very deep well to be diving into sometimes uh in, in many ways yeah yeah so i mean the, in interpreting anything we have to have firmly in our head a sense of who is it who's speaking and who is it who they're speaking to and what is the situation into which these words are being spoken mm -hmm. and 
a lot of folks from the more evangelical fundamentalist bent have in their head very clearly, oh, well, the speaker is God and he's speaking to me. <laughs> right. <laughs> right now today. That's what you get told. That's seriously what you get told. Yeah. 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 And so and so you cut out this whole series of steps in interpretation. And everything that exists at this surface, this sort of flat surface level. Whereas, you know, if we understand, for example, when we're looking at when we're talking about war or violence and we're looking at the commandments of the Torah. And we understand this is written, right? This this is God speaking through Moses, right, to a uh, Bronze Age culture, late Bronze Age culture that exists in the midst of a whole bunch of other ancient Near Eastern Bronze Age cultures. Then you can kind of see what the teachings of the Torah are doing in terms of that culture, how it's placing limits, how it's correcting right how it's it's shifting the direction in which it's shifting that culture and once we understand that then we can take that and apply it to our present day and our present cultural situations right and and see how that fits and this is a place where if we're reading the church fathers correctly they really help us cuz that's exactly what they did Right. Uh, St. John Chrysostom reads the New Testament, sees what St. Paul is saying to a church in first century Rome or Corinth, understands how that works and says, okay, here's how that now fits into the situations I'm facing in Antioch or Constantinople in the late fourth, early fifth century, which were not identical. <laughs> right. Yeah. But the scriptures still spoke to it. There's just this step. And so. That's especially important when we're dealing with these kinds of issues that are literally life and death for people. Um, how we approach, how we justify going to war, participating in war and violence literally will mean the lives of of people. Yeah. Um, would, would it make sense to start with this word justice and, and putting a bit of context on what justice meant in those societies uh, of sure. the Old Testament? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we tend to think of justice a lot of times in terms of criminal justice, primarily. Mm -hmm. And uh, the whole concept of criminal justice in the West is inextricably bound up to Western theology of justice and atonement and, and guilt, right? Um, and so those are the terms in which we think of it. Someone violates a rule, violates a law, right? Commits a, commits a crime. And then there is some punishment due that crime. And so justice is when the punishment fits the crime is duly administered and appropriately administered. Right. And injustice is anything other than that, right? If it's applied to the wrong person, if it's, the punishment is too strict or too mild, right? And that's how we assess it. Mm -hmm. But the ancient world was very different in how it saw justice. Justice from the perspective of ancient cultures, uh, the Hebrew word here is mishpat. Um, it's related to the concept of ma'at in ancient Egypt. And the idea is that justice is the situation when everything and everyone is in their proper place. And everything is functioning properly together, harmoniously. That's justice. 
And so injustice is anytime that order is broken, that becomes injustice. And then to judge is to step in and correct that situation, to put things back in order the way they were supposed to be. And so this is why we have judges in the book of judges who aren't hearing any court cases, right? <laughs> who aren't just, but uh, Israel is being oppressed, right? Israel sins, that creates injustice. A foreign oppressor comes in, and now a judge arises to put things back. All right. Um, and so this becomes very important in the New Testament, too, in terms of how we understand justification. From, from an Orthodox perspective, justification is starting with ourselves being put back in order by God. Um, because our passions and our thoughts and our emotions and our, are all out of order um, and need to be corrected first um, before we can try to help anyone else or the world, <laughs> right? Try and, try and put those back in order. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's a very different concept of justice. It's, it's happening through the act of judgment. And when you say judgment, it's kind of like, you know, I, I think like the way you're saying is like judge, jury, and executioner. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's the whole, it, it goes all the way, right? And so, and that's painful a lot of the time. Uh, if you yeah. just think start, starting with that internal thing that's happening of growth or personal, you know, it's like I often, you know, when I'm talking to my wife, you know, uh, about like some, you know, we have to face a difficult difference of opinion, then um, it's like we need to die to actually grow a lot of these times. Like something inside of us actually goes through a death and it, and it, and it hurts. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's why humility is so important because without humility, you can't allow yourself to be corrected. Yeah. You're not willing to be, and humility is not sort of pounding your chest and saying how horrible you are or feeling miserable. Humility is telling the truth about yourself. First of all, to yourself, which is hard enough, right? Admitting the truth to myself about who I am and what I've done and what I've been, but then admitting it to someone else so that we can be judged, so that we can be corrected, so that we can put be put back a right. So, so maybe that means is, the, is it our yeah. lack of humility that's because for me the challenge is more I'd say to realize who I am and what I've done. You know, once I see it, then it's easier for me to admit it. But uh, you know, I, we've I've been so and maybe is this also like the comfortable life that I have that that doesn't necessitate me actually owning up to these things a lot of the time. Um, right, it's very easy to get distracted mm -hmm. and just focus on other things. <laughs> right other than myself, other than the relationships between me and other people and me in the world and me and, you know, um, to just go off somewhere <laughs> right? in a, through a streaming service or, or whatever. Yeah. Start yeah. some new project. We live at our whole culture facilitates this kind of like individualist lifestyle where we don't need each other in the same way at all that, that, you know, people, yeah. we, we're, we're very, yeah. very, yeah. Yeah. And that, and that understanding of justice, though, entails that, mm -hmm. entails that we're all connected, mm -hmm. right? And that uh, the, it's the relationship, right, that, that needs to be corrected. And so that will always involve other people. Yeah. That will always involve our reconciliation, not just to God, but to each other, right? Um, and, and judgment, then, is not like retributive. It's not 
taking vengeance, right, to the person who we assess as guilty, but it's always corrective and restorative. Yeah. So, I mean, I, maybe we should just go into, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people that still struggle and with this idea of like, you know, the existence of evil <laughs> and why does God let terrible things happen in the world? And why is there sickness? Why is there death? Why is there war where th tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people are being killed? Um, and what I, what I think I'm hoping is coming out is, is just like that this, it's easier sometimes to see it at the personal level, but, but humility is the key to it. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Well, and so we have to understand when, when, the order in which God created the world, when injustice happens mm -hmm. and we're the ones who are creating it in the world, that means that the harmony and the beauty of creation starts to break down. And that has real consequences. Uh, the, the reality is most of the time when the scriptures talk about punishment, about God sending punishment on us or on our culture or society in a collective way, what he's really doing and the way it's really portrayed in the scriptures is that he's sort of removing his protection, letting us experience the consequences of our actions. Uh, the, Which is chaos, right? That's basically, is right. I think also that what was the word in, in, the Genesis account of the creation, it was like the spirit of God moved above the waters and there was, uh, it was just like, it, it's, there, there was no word for nothing. Right. So it was, yes. Yeah. It's chaos. It's primordial yeah, chaos. Yeah. It's it, and it, where that order breaks down, it sinks back into chaos. Chaos is just destruction and death. Yeah. And which and, is also just what being an individual separate from, you know, separation is equal to that as well. Right. Like right. everything, no connections, no existence between things. Right. Right. And so, um, so yeah, so God taking his hand away, and this this language gets used in, in Romans 1, it talks about God handing them over to their sinful desires, right? This is what you want. Okay, here it is. <laughs> right. Um, when St. Paul uses the language in terms of excommunication of handing someone over to Satan, that's what he's talking about. Okay, put them outside the church and let them live out there for a while, and hopefully that will drive them back and say, oh, this isn't really what I want. That the one of the the harshest judgments God can ever give to us is giving us what we think we want, mm -hmm. and and letting us have that and letting us live with that for a while. And so um, the the question, of course, of of theodicy of why does God allow this evil of the world is is always why is God letting this happen. But entailed in that is, right, he's not the one doing it, he's letting it happen, <laughs> right? And so we're kind of even admitting when we ask the question that we're doing it to ourselves, right? That we're we're the ones bringing it about. So there are times when God keeps us on the way, perhaps, and maybe by not giving, not, not, yeah. So, it's, but the, the punish is more like the, it's more like, yeah, that's the worst thing. I'm just thinking in, in the instance of, I have a nearly three-year-old son. Yeah. Um, and if I just, you know, withdraw my hand and let him do whatever he wants, then there's really going to be chaos, right? Right, right. And so, so instead of that, I discipline him. Right. Um, and I, I, I give him, uh, you know, I use whatever I can. You know, I'm living in Scandinavia, so there's all kinds of limit, what, difficulties of how to do that as well. Um, but, yeah, yeah. 
but but, but so yeah where, where can one draw a line or is there some way of distinguishing between god disciplining us somehow or withdrawing himself and leading us leaving us to our own designs well even even when he withdraws himself it's with the hope of repentance mm-hmm. right even when saint paul hand, says hand some this man over to satan he says for the destruction of his body, but the salvation of his soul. Okay. Right. So that's always the goal, but it's sort of an extended, you know, I mean, a metaphor might be like if your child is always trying to touch the stove when it's on, keep saying, don't touch the stove. Don't touch the stove. It's hot. Don't touch the stove. It's hot. Don't touch the stove. It's hot. Grab his hand and stop him. Grab his hand and stop him. Eventually, right. If the stove's not too hot and there's not too much danger, you might let him touch it and burn his finger. You know, and, and and then he'll know for sure, right? <laughs> that this yeah. is not right. Um, and and there are some people who will say that's trite because the horrors and evil in the world is a lot more than somebody burning their finger, right? Um, and so this is not to minimize that, right? Um, horrible things are done to children and innocent people in this world, um. But uh, there there are a bunch of factors there that we can get into in terms of the relationship between God and those people who are who are being victimized and harmed. But uh, you know, also on the on the other side, um, if if we had a God who you know smote with a lightning bolt every person who did something evil, there wouldn't be many of us left. Yeah. Right. And and so there is a sort of constant in terms of justice and in terms of judgment, God kind of constantly has this balance that he knows better than we do mm-hmm. between the evil and the making of victims and the harm that we're we're doing with our sin on the one hand and his desire to give us time to repent on the other because he is merciful. And we see over and over again in the scriptures that eventually the weight of that evil sort of overcomes the weight of that mercy. And then the time to repent is over and, and judgment happens and things are corrected. Yeah. I I read, uh, I'm reading St. Pius's spiritual councils and he has this idea that I actually haven't heard it anywhere else before, but it's such a powerful and beautiful and incredibly touching in some way. It's like that he, he talks about how God takes a person at the time when they're closest to him, when they're drawing the most to him. So when somebody dies, you know, in our judgment, it's like, oh, what a terrible time. Like, you know, just in the yeah. prime of his yeah. youth or something like that. But God is interested in 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 the person, you know, being as, as near to him. And if they're, you know, if they're about to do something that would take them away from him far more, you know, then that's the time when they're taken. And so it's a it's a way that really answers that question. I think a lot of our difficulty is our view on physical death and how we see that as the worst possible thing that could ever happen to a human yeah. being, uh, especially for a child or a young person, right? That, that death. Yeah. I, I think looking at just my own life, it's like there's been, it's just so clear how I was, I've been headed towards things that have been far worse than that, even, even in my own life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's we have a very materialist perspective of that, you know, and we have a fairly compared to almost everyone in human history, sort of a very posh lifestyle where 
you know, someone dies their youth. Oh, they're never going to get to go to prom. They're never going to get to, you know, <laughs> so that the other, right. When, when, when the vast majority of the earth's population was doing subsistence farming and it was an open question based on the weather, whether all of your children were going to survive that winter, they had a very different view of life at death. Right. <laughs> That's and they, But they might not have been less happy than we are, even with our problems right. and driving our right. first car. <laughs> they might have actually had a more meaningful and connected life and probably had lower rates of suicide and all kinds of other right. uh, indicators. Right. Right? Right. Like, yeah. 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 Denmark's supposed to be the happiest country in the world, uh, but we have up a, like a third of the population taking antidepressants uh, for anxiety oh, yeah. and all this kind of stuff. Right. So it's, it's quite interesting to see how those things can be considered true at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, the the a big part of this is one of the more controversial things we got into on Lord of Spirits, but I'm convinced it's true mm-hmm. that um and this is the place where we actually said something nice about Michel Foucault. Uh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Foucault's early work on the history of the concept of madness is actually really important. Mm-hmm. because he shows how madness or insanity or mental illness even how those terms change over time and how the use of those categories change over time you know in the medieval period early modern period you know mm-hmm. it was basically a political category the madman was the person who was in some way opposed to the social order mm-hmm. and or the king <laughs> right mm-hmm. you're insane so we're going to lock you up right um, and then how that gets medicalized, right, coming into the modern or our contemporary period. But that in a lot of cases, what we're really talking about is people's inability to fit into the current social order, the current way of ordering life, the current way of being in the world that our society has. Mm-hmm. And I think as our society has become more and more inhuman, right, and and less and less grounded in what it means to be human what it really means to be human human Mm -hmm. nature is created by god uh fewer and fewer people are able to function within that kind of inhuman society Mm -hmm. and um i i think it is a valid critique that um by medicalizing the problem and certain other ways we look at it um we're sort of treating symptoms rather than addressing the problems, right. That are going on in our societies and cultures yeah. um, to try and fix those. We're just trying to kind of find some way to get those people to fit in well enough, right. To, to function. Be productive uh, citizens of society. Yeah. Yeah. But Stephen, would you mind if I used my own life as a bit of an example and told you a little oh. bit about that, if that, if that's uh, okay, because I, yeah. I, I feel like, there's still like an unresolved thing um, just from my childhood. You know, I sometimes I think like there's a part of me that's a bit of a fighter. Um, and, and I think it's also related to what we're trying to do with this podcast is to bring out a masculine spirit in men uh, that is submitted to the will of God. <laughs> and, yeah. and how to do that exactly. It's, it's, it's a bit of a battle and especially doing it in relationships with other human beings where, you know, it's, it's so hard to negotiate these, these things. Um, I went to martial arts when I was a kid. Uh, my my parents sent me there. I, I was good at it. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, and sometime around, you know, I had a very happy childhood. I had very loving parents. My parents are very dedicated to the church that they were members of. We went five times a week um, and had a very loving family. And 
when I hit teenage years, I the rebellious <laughs> fighting spirit came up in me, I guess. I rebelled. I didn't want to go to church anymore. Uh, and that whole church thing kind of like needed to push it away. And so fairly early on, I left home and became an atheist. Uh, and actually was the angry atheist for many years and went around telling people how, you know, absolutely ridiculously stupid they were for, for being Christians. And um, went through a large period of my life, then noticing how things were falling to pieces <laughs> and nothing was holding it together. And went on Amazon looking for books, how to find the meaning of life, <laughs> and getting all kinds of, you know, 19th century German philosophers, as you talked yeah. <laughs> about, and trying to read some of these and looking at different approaches and things like that. And, you know, thank God, somewhere in Thailand at some kind of Hindu place, someone gave a lecture on Jesus Christ uh, over, over Christian Easter. And that was the first time, like, G Christ just popped up in my life again. Um, and and so that was a slow journey that ended me with me coming back to the Orthodox faith. Um, but I noticed within me, there's still an aspect of like uh, enjoying the, the iron sharpening iron of male company that is directed and purposeful and puts forward his best case and listens well to the other one. Um, and, you know, wants to grow, isn't always entirely sure, or maybe a little bit overconfident at times, right? Uh, of, of how to do things as well. And so what I also find is that I don't fit well in a lot of society. <laughs> My normal social spheres, I, it's really hard for me to get along. Being Orthodox Christian in Denmark is very strange. We're like 50 Danish-speaking Orthodox people in the whole country, uh, something like that. So it's it's tiny. It's very exotic in many ways. Um, so what you're talking there about, like, you know, like not fitting in, I really feel like that that that's a part of me. And I, I think part of it's I'm, one of the clear things is coming from me now. It's like, I'm very impatient. I'm very, very impatient. <laughs> and then luckily I'm impatient to get to know God better. <laughs> yeah. I want to, yeah. I want to like go to ask us more and I want to you know talk to people more like yourself and stuff like that as well. And so I can direct that towards God. But even when I do that, sometimes I'm like, you know, I'm bugging my spiritual father to answer my messages about like giving me a blessing to do this and this thing and <laughs> irritating him and stuff like that as well. Right. So, um, how does one integrate conflict and violence in a good way that I realize yeah. will probably be a part of my life until the until I die? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I never did martial arts. I was just a brawler as a kid. I'm that guy when you see those lists of sins in Saint Paul and it says like brawling. That was me. Like, <laughs> so like my response to someone saying something I didn't want to hear was punching them in the mouth uh -huh. for a good portion of my childhood. Um. So, uh, yeah. So I get that. <laughs> That's and, and uh, argumentation. You know. Um. So, I think this is part of the key of having a real, a real and vibrant understanding of spiritual warfare. Um, the problem isn't that we want to fight. Right. The the problem isn't even that we sometimes get angry. Right. Christ got angry when he cleared the temple. St. Paul got angry when he saw all the idolatry, right, in in Athens. Um, St. Paul says, In your anger, do not sin, meaning just having the anger, right, isn't a sin in and of itself. It's what you do with it. 
right? And those things can become constructive or destructive depending on what where we aim them. And a big part of where spiritual warfare comes into this is that we have by and large misidentified our enemies in that we think our enemies are other human beings, right? The person who disagrees with me is my enemy. The person who did something that hurt me is my enemy. Uh, the person who has a different view than I have politically or religiously or however else is my enemy. Mm -hmm. um, and my goal then is to defeat my enemy, <laughs> right? To destroy them, to be victorious. Mm -hmm. And that's not Christian morality. That's pagan morality. That's literally the Romans worshipped victory, right? They worshipped conquest. Um, so our actual enemies are the passions, are the demonic powers that are the ones who are motivating all too often us, but also these other people who we usually identify as enemies. Uh, when St. Paul is talking about for most of the time when he's talking about trying to get to see the emperor to preach the gospel to him, to try to convert him, uh, when he's saying, telling people to pray for the emperor, uh, to be at peace with the imperial power, that's Caligula, who's the Roman emperor. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of good things to say about Caligula from any perspective, right? historically. Uh, even from a secular perspective, not a good emperor, right? Um, but St. Paul doesn't see Caligula as his enemy which makes him different than a lot of the Jews at his time. Most of the Jewish people at his time saw Rome as the enemy who we need to go and use violence to defeat. Um, Judas Iscariot, the Iscariot part probably is referring to the Sicarii who are a zealot group that literally just went around assassinating Roman officials. Um, and so St. Paul is at odds with that. He sees the enemy as the spiritual powers who are motivating Caligula, who Caligula has become enslaved to. The lust, the demonic worship, all those things that Caligula is enslaved to. He wants to preach the gospel to Caligula and set Caligula free. And that means opposition. There's a, there's a, a subtext that's become too much subtext in the book of Acts. All this stuff about shipwrecks and this kind of thing. Is not just talking about, oh, see, bad things happen sometimes in your life, even when you're serving God and you need to struggle through them. St. Luke, if you read it in the Greek, it becomes apparent, especially if you compare it to like Thucydides, whose St. Luke's style is kind of deliberately aping. He's depicting like the pagan gods going after St. Paul. That is very that, that shipwreck is very much a story of Zeus going after St. Paul. <laughs> right? and, and of course doesn't win right doesn't get saint paul but this is attempting to portray this kind of spiritual warfare conflict and so if we look at our fellow human being even the one who hates us the most right who has said or maybe even done horrible things to us as someone who's actually on our side of this fight but has fallen prey to the enemy our attitude toward them is going to be very different, right? When we direct, rightly direct our desire to fight, our aggression, our anger at what it is that's driving them, at the greed or the lust or the pride or whatever it is that's got them in its grip.
And that's hard to do. That's a lot harder to do than just punching the person in the mouth like I did when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> but it's that's what Christ is calling us to do. He's not calling us to just sort of be like, oh, well, whatever, you know, abuse me, you know, <laughs> but he's calling us to, to a level of understanding and directing that in the right way. And so when we make our enemy, our friend, when our enemy comes to faithfulness in Christ, that's when we've won. Not when we defeat them, make them lose their job, inflict the pain on them, they inflicted on us, what have you. Yeah. It's so good to notice just the fruits of what happens. And, and I've, I've just noticed like if, if things is create, if it's creating more peace, <laughs> there's, there's an ability to bring more peace and understanding. Uh, sometimes it also means, I mean, one thing I think is important is, is the boundaries of, of there's something about, uh, I, I think the verses like yoking yourself with unbelievers or something like that, that I've, I've often found myself coming through my work from a situation where I'm working very closely with men who have a very different set of values and, you know, sometimes there's been a business interest in kind of going along with some things to, to work with these people and, and thereby <clears throat> not standing up for uh, what, what really matters in life. And so what I've noticed in my work situations, there's been some times where even at the risk of some financial loss or, you know, business positioning loss, daring to just be honest, <laughs> what you spoke about, humility is being honest, being truthful about yourself, you know, I'm an, I'm an Orthodox Christian, I can't go along with that, you know, that's not, that's, that you know, that's against what I believe, I can't, I can't do that, um, I, I can't actually be a part of that happening, that's a scary thing to do sometimes, and it's, and it takes yeah. a lot of courage, <laughs> and it's very simple, it's, it's not an aggressive act, it's, it's more just a, it's an act of clear boundaries as well, so, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, um, yeah, yeah, and that, and that requires a kind of bravery and courage, yeah. right? Up to the ultimate example of that being the martyrs. Yeah, the martyrs are, yeah. That takes a lot of bravery and courage to stand before somebody who's about to torture you to death and is giving you, well, all you have to do is say this and you're off the hook. And to stand there and say, no, I'm not saying that. Right? And and then enduring enduring what comes. And... You know what? What we fit. What most of us, most of the people watching a, a a YouTube video or listening to a podcast, right, are are not going to face that extreme in their life. Lord willing, I mean, you never know. Somebody could have said that in Russia in 1910 too, but <laughs> um, are not going to face that directly. But we tend to look at even the little things, or smaller than that things, like the ones you mentioned, right. And rather than as, you know, the apostles, as the saints, as the martyrs did, rejoicing, as the scriptures say, that we've been deemed worthy, <laughs> right, to suffer even just a little bit, right, for the sake of Christ, we tend to kind of complain about it, be like, oh, why are we being persecuted? These people are anti-Christian bigots, and, <laughs> you know, and that's very much not the kind of courage that 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 our forebears in the faith had when they were willing to to stand and say this is who i am this is what i believe to be true and whatever consequences i face for it so be it yeah 
to stand and to stand from without being that emotional reactivity you know the thing that comes up is of course like the the my the relationship with your wife is, is perhaps the most difficult place <laughs> for me to do that at least um it, it's uh not having it there's there's occasionally when you know what came up in my mind I, I read it not so long ago about a specific martyr who i think you know like had been tortured and really really terribly tortured and then something like you know as he was asked to you know deny christ and he bit off his tongue and spit it at the person yeah. torturing him or something like that 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 kind of thing as well so there is often an act of when could so i think isn't defiance would that be a word i could use about several of the martyrs uh and and yeah examples yeah. That seen? yeah yeah that that's um so um the the problem is not and hopefully people won't clip this out before i finish what i'm saying the problem is not rebellion as such right the problem is first what and who we're rebelling against and second how we're rebelling um when if if we're in a society or in a situation where there's some kind of inhuman evil being practiced right and we rebel against that right if you're saint george and you refuse to massacre the christian village the way you've been ordered to mm -hmm. as a roman soldier right he's rebelling against his command structure right mm -hmm. but he's rebelling against evil and then secondly how he rebelled he didn't respond to that by going and killing his commander right and trying to stage some kind of coup and, and take over the unit mm -hmm. right he just said no and he stood firm and said, no, regardless of what the threats, regardless of the, no, I will not do that. You know? Um, yeah. And so th there is no, um, the, the virtue of obedience should not be confused with going along with things. <laughs> the, the virtue of obedience is an act of humility where we voluntarily submit our own will to the will of an, of another person because we choose to like a spiritual father. Right. Um, but that is not just going along with whatever that is not eradicating our will because obedience always requires choice from us. If we don't have a choice, if we're actually physically constrained, right. Then it's not obedience. Yeah. Right. Because we're not choosing it. So if we can take this even a step further now, uh, and, you know, for, I, th I think, yeah, the, the story of the children of Israel going into the promised land, invading these cities, killing all the women, men, women, and children. Um, how does that tie into this? How that, for me, yeah. that's an example of, you know, St. George, not just right. denying his commander, but killing him and taking <laughs> yeah. over the units as well. And then leading them towards Rome to kill the emperor. Right, and right. as you said, that's not what happened. So why? Yeah, and yeah. I don't know if you want to if you want to get into uh, what what's this thing about giants? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How much we go into um, um, Well, yeah, and so it's it's important that we read the text carefully, mm -hmm. right? And and what the text is describing, and what we see, and this goes all the way back to Abraham, in the promises to Abraham, these particular groups are named, these particular clans, these particular people groups. Uh, are identified as ones that God is going to remove from the land and give it to Abraham. And at a couple of points when he says that, he says at the time, 
but their cup of iniquity is not yet full. This is that balance, right, between wickedness and mercy for repentance, right? So in Abraham's day, he's, God says, I'm still giving them time, right? Um, but then by the time we get to the conquest, time's up. And what we read in Joshua is not really the beginning of that. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, uh, God gives, this is when the Israelites get to Edom. They enter into Edom, which of course are the descendants of Esau. So these are sort of their cousins, right? Um, fellow descendants of Abraham. And God says, you're not to take one foot. Literally, that's what it says. The length of one foot is what they, uh, of land from the Edomites. Because God says he brought the Edomites there and he displaced and he lists some of those clans. He says that he brought the Moabites who are descended from Lot here and they displaced these clans and they displaced these. And now you're going to go into Canaan and you're going to wipe out these clans. Everyone other, everyone in Canaan other than those particular groups, there were very strict commandments about what they were allowed to do in terms of warfare. They were not allowed to exercise that kind of total war where they just wiped out everyone. Uh, so this is related to these particular groups. And the way the commandment to get rid of those groups is phrased is that it's particularly God putting an end to their abominations. There are these abominations that they're practicing, and God is putting an end to them. Uh, and so... Uh, when we get into what those abominations are, the Book of Wisdom talks about this. Other extra-biblical literature talks about this. That the main things that are going on is a kind of demonic sexual immorality involving temple prostitution that these groups are practicing. And human sacrifice with attendant cannibalism. This is the level to which their evil has got. Right. And... This is a kind of evil that even the other culture, ancient cultures, acknowledged was like beyond the pale. Right. So your your average Canaanite who's not a member of one of those clans would find that morally repellent, right? And and hideous, right? Um, and so this is this is what they're practicing. But we also have to remember, and these are sometimes called the giant clans, because that sexual immorality thing involves the Nephilim. Um and the idea that they're conceiving people through sacred prostitution and, and that they see their leaders as being divine, as being gods, um, who they, who they also worship. And so, but we have to remember that people groups were not defined by DNA in the ancient world, right. Or what we would call ethnicity even, um, or skin color, hair color, right? Phys physiognomic traits. Uh, what defined a people group was a, their ritual life. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty clear, we have lots of detail about it in the Torah, of the ritual life that defined what an Israelite was. Mm -hmm. um, the key elements being there was circumcision that was sort of the rite of initiation that brought you into the people group, and then the Passover was sort of at the center of the whole sacrificial system and, and ritual way of life. And so someone who was circumcised and then participated in that ritual life was an Israelite. And it didn't matter who their parents were or what color their skin was or 
And there are examples of this. Probably the most prominent one that I point out to people is it's Phineas in most English translations of the Bible. It's actually the original is Pinihas, which is uh, one of the uh, Egyptian words for a Nubian, mm-hmm. uh, for a black-skinned African. Uh, it literally means the black-skinned one. <laughs> this is what it means. And when you read the Torah closely, uh, his his father, who was uh, Aaron's son Eliezer, married a woman from put from southern Libya, and P.S. was their son. He was the third uh, high priest of Israel, and was the one from whom all the other, all the later high priests descended. And he did not look like a lot of the other Israelites, right? But he was the high priest, right? So he was an Israelite of Israelites. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the same thing is true of these giant clans. What makes someone a parasite or a Girgashite, right? Or one of these groups is that you're participating in this ritual life. And so when God says their abominations have to be wiped out, it means there can't be any more Amalekites left. There can't be any more gergesites left right that doesn't mean they had to slaughter every one of them right any anyone who stopped practicing those things if a man was a parasite and forswore practicing those things and repented and went and got circumcised he would become an israelite uh and so he's not anymore a parasite right <laughs> he's now an israelite and so If all the ones who refuse to let go of those ways, who refuse to stop practicing those ways, they end up having to be killed. But if everyone else is assimilated into other tribes and clans, then there are no more Girgashites or Parasites mission accomplished. Right. And so that, when you read the text closely, seems to be what's actually happening. And one of the things I usually ask people who still have moral problems with that right? They have a sensitive conscience is I say, well, if you knew for certain, for certain, no shadow of a doubt that your next door neighbor was abducting and sacrificing children in their house, would you like pray that they stop? Right? (laughs) Or like, or would you call some kind of authorities to come in and make them stop? even knowing that those authorities might have to be armed and in the process of trying to make him stop, that person might be killed, right? That, that your next door neighbor might end up, might end up dead as the only way to stop him from doing this thing. I don't know anyone who wouldn't still call the authorities, right? Who wouldn't say, yes, whatever needs to happen to make him stop doing that needs to happen. And hopefully that won't require his death, but if it does, it's better than letting him continue. Right. And so this is this is what's going on in the narrative. God gets to that point with the balance and it's like this cannot continue. Mm-hmm. And the Israelites and the Edomites and the Philistines and these other migrant groups are what God used to put a stop to it. Yeah. There's two different things here that I really think would be very interesting to go into. One is more like this question about why is sacrifice, human sacrifice, such a big thing in all you know we have it the kind of 
form of it in Christianity as well is Christ as the sacrifice, right? And we eat and drink his 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 flesh and blood yeah. as well. Um, and then the other thing that I also I don't know if you, I'll put these both out there. It's just like that. I was thinking, but you're talking about how your identity is formed by your ritual practices that you do with a group of people, and that forms your understanding of who you are. And my first thought was like, what a crazy way we have identifying our, you know, creating our identity today, where it's based on some completely other things than that. But then I started thinking, well, actually, maybe, maybe it is the ritual practices that we're doing. We don't see them as rituals anymore, but, you know, our lives are so ritualized, actually, more so than ever, perhaps. Uh, it's just in a secular religious uh, ritual system, which, which is somehow playing itself out as well um and and the results of it as well that that are creating those identities we're seeing right yeah yeah and and so the yeah ritual is inescapable right uh, th there are going to be patterns yeah and sacrifice and, seems to be a sacrifice yeah. is a ritual right like it's a yeah even yeah. human sacrifice to its to, to yeah. an extent and, and either we'll form them for ourselves but more often, someone in power or authority will form them around us <laughs> right? and maneuver them into us, maneuver us into them in order to move us in a certain direction. Yeah. Um, what happens, there was a great book, uh, I think it might be out of print now, unfortunately, called Earthly Powers. And it was talking about how in the 18th and 19th century, over the course of the Enlightenment, a lot of those ritual, he went through everything, all kinds of ritual, including iconography, all of these things got transferred from Christianity to the state, mm -hmm. to various nation states in Europe. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, that progressed into the United States, Canada, right? Other places. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so... You know, you look at the calendar, the hol the holidays, right? The holy days, right? <laughs> the, the the cycle of feasting that gets detached from Christianity and reattached to sig instead of significant events in the life of Christ, it's significant events in the life of the state. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And, and 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 you sit and you guys on Lord of Spirits talking about how like you know the the meal, the family meal was at the hearth. That was the center of the constituting ritual of the family. And yeah. it just made me think of like, you know, sitting there having dinner in front of the television, having TV dinners and how yeah. <laughs> then sharing these moments of like, you know, like, you know, <clears throat> things happening on television that everybody remembers and talks about the next day. And that becomes the, the central orientation. The binding, part, the binding, the binding factors. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and now, unfortunately now we're even more fragmented than that. Yeah. Right. Now, now we have a whole different, we have, a definition of identity that is at 180 degrees from what it was for the rest of human history. Mm -hmm. um, for most of human history, identity was a series of layers of your relationships to different groups and communities. So when you took, I am the husband of my wife, right? <laughs> the father of my children, the, the, you know, I have this job i'm a, i'm the blacksmith in my village i'm mm -hmm. <laughs> right and and i am a christian and i and you piled all those things up right that was your identity mm -hmm. it was the sum of all of those roles and now our definition of identity 
is very adolescent. Like you talked about rebelling as a teenager, right? When you're first trying to form your own identity as a teenager, it's I'm not whatever my parents are, right? <laughs> like I'm not whatever this is. Mm-hmm. And now everyone seems to be in this area of just identity as negation. Mm-hmm. My identity is the way I'm different than everyone else. Mm-hmm. My identity is what disassociates me what fragments me and alienates me from everything else until I'm all alone. And lo and behold, I don't really have any sense of my identity at all because mm-hmm. I'm so alienated. I'm not related to anyone or anything. Yeah. And I'm sitting in front of my computer and I'm not even living in my body anymore. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, that's a culture that- where God doesn't need to do, uh, or it doesn't need to send any death and destruction because it's death by itself. Like it is, yeah. it is really just separation. So we don't need a war uh, <laughs> at least, but the problem is we're doing it to our children as well. And we're indoctrinating them into yeah. it as well. And, yeah. And they're growing up without any sense of identity already pre-alienated, <laughs> right? Not waiting until later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's, that's, um, and that's why one of one of the most important things we can do, and in terms of the, the theme of your channel, is try to correct that. Right? Because part of part of what it means to be a man is to fulfill the role of a man in a family, in a community, in a <laughs> right, in all these structures. And I think a lot of people are puzzled as to what that means because they're trying to think about it in front of their computer in this isolated way. <laughs> and in relation to nothing, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it it means something in relation to all of these other yeah. right spheres. So would you agree with me then the way to do that is to actually look at your relationships with people that you are in a natural organic relationship to and my very favorite episode of Lord of Spirits, that was World of Priestcraft. I actually made a short uh, summary of it. I made a little 20-minute summary of it <laughs> with the main points and put it on my YouTube channel because I found it so interesting and, and that I felt like this is the missing key. Men have stepped back from their priestly role in their families, in society, in their communities. They're not fulfilling their priestly role. And it was this, this role of kind of being this um, neutral mediator between God and man and man and God. Uh, and 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 that's how you kind of rise up <laughs> and cause something because to create unification, something needs to you need to have something to look at that's above you, right? Otherwise, yeah, the unification. So that's men need to not do it as their own person, but then to be able to somehow communicate, rise up, take hold of that light, and and be a channel that it can that it can be shone through. Is that a, a good way of describing it? Yeah, yeah, and that requires other people. That requires community. That includes. It requires us to get out of ourselves right and 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 to relate and then once people are doing that uh it's not that well now i have a good answer to the question what does it mean to be a man what does it mean? it's that the question doesn't arise because you know yeah or more likely like people will push back at you're you and doing say, you're it. an idiot and you're a you're a tyrant and and you yeah. have to talk more and better you're, so, but then you'll be in in the process of growing and learning it Right, struggling right. with it, right? Like for me, it is a struggle. But as you say, like for, certainly that's my challenge is that I I sit and I think about it too much. I sit in front of my screen and I read articles about how to do it, and I I don't go and talk to my wife instead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that that's one of the things that, 
and I'm talking about Protestantism here, not even specifically like actual going to church religious Protestantism, but Protestantism in terms of the history of ideas <laughs> right in Western culture mm-hmm. has has done to us. Because it doesn't matter if you're a Protestant or not. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not in this case, if you're living in one of our sort of Protestantized Western cultures, is that we have come to view everything from morality on down as being primarily about ideas and agreeing with the correct ideas, like assenting to the correct ideas, having the correct opinions. And uh, without any relation to what we're actually doing, right? That's why I say it's coming out of Protestantism, right? Um, Can you put a bit more specific how and why does that come out of Protestantism? Sure. Um, I'll use a super controversial example. <laughs> right. uh, Never do that. In the in, in, in the abortion in the abortion debate in the U.S., uh, there are lots of people who are very very pro life or very very pro choice. And my first question to any of them, if we're going to have a conversation about it, is, okay, have you actually done anything about this? Like, do you donate money to like a crisis pregnancy center to help women who are pregnant so they won't feel the need to get an abortion? Do you, right? Do you, well, I, I post about it, right? Or, so, <laughs> or on the on the other side, if they say they're pro-choice, I'm like, do you like take women to get abortions? Do you pay for abortions? No, I post about it online, right? And, and you know, um, I've told them, well, I, I really don't care what your opinion is if you're not going to do anything about it. Right. That that's a morally irrelevant category. <laughs> if it has no effect on how you live mm-hmm. <laughs> right? and 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 what you do. Um so I mean being right is better than being wrong. I think we could objectively say that, but uh it's it's not the hearers of the law, but the doers who are justified, as St. Paul tells us. Uh, the 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 we've we've removed action actual living in the world right that's the arena of salvation that's the arena of morality that's the arena of it's supposed to be the arena of politics right politics isn't what i post on twitter politics is how i live out in my community right what should our how should our community govern itself what are our values what are the things we want to enact in the world as a community not you know do i like this guy better or that guy better who i've never met never will <laughs> but, uh, you know, yeah. So th- those are some some more concretions. I th- I think the, the but I still don't get why this specifically is related to Protestantism. Why why is it that they, uh, how did that, where where was where did Protestantism well faith, faith apart from works, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You have the right beliefs. You believe the right things. Yeah. So becoming a saved. Christian is about is about saying I believe in God and right. then. <laughs> Right. And, and that's it. That's all you need. Yeah. Right. And and, and there'll be a longer or shorter list, right? <laughs> Depending on Protestant groups, right? Mm-hmm. Of how many things you have to believe, right? Like most Protestant groups will say, well, yeah, you have to believe in the Trinity and in some way, right? You don't have to have it nailed down, but <laughs> right. And, and, you know, they'll have longer or shorter lists, but that's what makes you a Christian, right? That's what makes you is that you 
you've had you this kind of uh, conversion experience where you've stated yeah. uh, that you believe something and you not yeah. sometimes at least in my church it was also an emotional experience something that you know <laughs> you, yeah. you were emotionally moved by as well um, yeah. but, but you look at modern secular liberal liberalism mm -hmm. it's the same thing mm -hmm. you have to have the right opinions on right these things. things if you have these bad opinions you bad idea if you don't believe the right things you're a bad person right if you believe right things you're a good person and even there's a little bit of that emotion that like oh well you have to have empathy for mm -hmm. <laughs> right this this group and that group yeah um but yeah, so this is what, what, emphasis on doing things yeah <laughs> so when i started looking coming back from atheism looking at the world of spirituality obviously first i went to eastern religions and this is what was very attractive about something like buddhism for me because you didn't have to believe anything you didn't have to buy any kind of system you know there was something about like in reincarnation that was kind of like lurking in the background there all the time and kept on popping <laughs> up but it was really just like sit down and do this do this thing you know yeah uh and and that was that was very really attractive to me and then you know I, eventually i i i found the shortcomings of that but i've, I've been wondering sometimes like can we do the same thing as christians Is, or where, where, where you know that can the obviously you need faith and you need works but you know <laughs> yeah can is well, it enough I've so I argue, I think we have it, I think we have it precisely backwards, the way we tend to think about it. Mm -hmm. We think people do things based on their beliefs. And I actually think it's the exact opposite. I think people come to believe things based on what they do. Um, and I think if someone, uh, say someone has their doubts, someone's coming into the Orthodox Church. And basically, you know, I'm not sure about this whole Theotokos things. It seems a little weird to me, you know, because <laughs> I was a Protestant or, <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm not, you know, it's really the body and blood of Jesus. That seems kind of creepy, <laughs> right? Eating eating flesh and drinking blood, right? Or or whatever it is, right? Yeah. They have their doubts about this or that, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, Why the funny hats? Yeah. <laughs> I think what you see happen over time with those people is if they decide, but but I think this is the church. This is where Christ is. I'm going to become an Orthodox Christian. As they live that life, those things start to click and make sense. That 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 the way of life is the context in which those beliefs and those ideas make sense, and that they arise out of. Um, and I think we approach it the other way. Almost like, and this, I do catechesis differently than a lot of other priests based on this, you know, that we need to get them to agree with all this, our list of things, right? Here's the seven ecumenical councils and what they say. You have to agree that all these things are true and that, okay, now you're an Orthodox Christian. Um, and I think it's much more about living a certain way of life in the world and then those beliefs arising. And, and, that's not it's not just buddhism it's pretty much any religion ever mm -hmm. other than you yeah. know modern liberal western, western christianity yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right like the people practice a way of life right like if you went and asked uh an ancient greek like what are your religious beliefs so you believe there's like 12 really powerful guys who live on that mountain over there they would have looked at you like you were crazy <laughs> you know like what like <laughs> It's, it's like no, I, I I go and I participate in this festival because that's what 
because I'm a citizen of this city and that's that's what we do and these I worship these gods because these are the gods of my ancestors and and I worship this god because this is the god of my trade guild like that's how religion worked yeah right for most of history and and this is why so much of what St Paul's writing to pagans who have become Christians is about all this practical stuff mm-hmm. about all this how you live stuff because yeah. it's not just, okay, you need to, in your head, change your beliefs. Okay, stop worship believing in those gods. Believe they don't exist and believe this one does exist. And right. And here are the doctrines. It's here's how you need to change your life. Right. Because it's a holistic kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's about bringing together the ideas and the life, the experience of life. And a lot of the time, you know, we, we that's where we are. We're down on the earth. And so yeah. the, the ideas are stars that we can follow, but most of our attention is going to be put in our everyday level um, of experience. So if I want to try and bring this together, you know, I started off with, there's a terrible conflict happening not that far away from where I live. Um, many people in my church are coming up, up here uh, from, from Ukraine um, and we have Belarusians, Russians, Ukrainians in the same church. And it's, it's beautiful to experience, you know, we being in a, chur- in a church together with these people and, and seeing how we're, we're doing, we're doing our best to be there. And so in some ways, I guess what's happening is that there's a, this is, this is the, the judgment of God happening in our society. It seems to be increasing. It seems to be growing in many places and i have a hard time just saying okay well i just need to think about myself and you know sort out my the stuff that's really close to me because i it's so so present in my life and i at the same time i see um the politics politicians in my own country are you know very very seems to be excited about this war and sending more and more money and material down there to kill more people um and a lot of the interests are seem to be just gearing upwards uh, about it. So it's it's something that frightens me, frightens me for the, the future of our society, for my family in this country, in this continent. I see nuclear war looming and less and less people seem to be aware of, of how terrible that can be. And so how does one act in a society like this world? How do I send my kids? Right now I have a kid that's about to be in school age. And it's, how do I send my kids to a school where they're going to be taught to be a part of a system where these are the values that that seem to be leading to this escalation of violence and conflict at the moment yeah yeah so there's there's obviously no simple answer to that um we we live and yeah the nuclear war thing is the thing that's been the most shocking to me because i'm i'm an old man like i i remember you know the end of the cold war Right. I remember I grew up not far from a U.S. Air Force base, and I remember watching stuff on TV about nuclear war and the atomic bomb and things. And then laying in bed and hearing a plane flying over from the Air Force base and thinking, oh, is that, you know, I'm a little kid. I don't know. Is that a Russian plane? Are they going to drop a bomb on me? You know, (laughs) and I kind of... I figured at a certain point in my life, well, at least that that kind of thing's over with. But here we are again, right? It's sort of come back around where that's a possibility again, and that's not a good thing. Um, but the, the reality is, I, I think, and you've probably heard me say this on Lord of Spirits, that um, 
I think St. Augustine's City of God is really important right now. Um, because we're we're simply we're living in an era where the world is changing. A hundred years from now, the world is not going to resemble the world now. We're at a transition point. And uh in a lot of ways, we'd all we'd all prefer to live sort of at the height of the curve, right? <laughs> you know, um, but that's not those aren't our times, right? Um, that's that's not when we live. And so St. Augustine's City of God is really trying to wrestle with this problem of, I mean, he's writing it as the Western Roman Empire is collapsing. And the you can't underestimate the social and cultural fragmentation that was causing. The people who were saying we need to return to the pagan gods because the problem was they're mad at us because we became Christian. Um, people looking for prophecies, right? Uh, the governor of the city of Rome finally burned the Sibylline books mm -hmm. right? because they were so, and, and we see that now with all kinds of weird cult and stuff activity going on, right? That um, it created just this complete tearing. And St. Augustine is writing it to say, there's a city of God, the new Jerusalem. And in this world, empires rise and empires fall. And they they rise and fall because they grow, they become corrupt, and they face judgment. But the city of God is constant throughout. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's important that Christians in a time like this, as we were saying before, have the courage to stand for something, <laughs> right? And to do it publicly. To describe that city to people who have never seen it, not just look to it ourselves, but describe it to people who have never seen it, who are looking for shelter from the storm that's going on all around us. Um, and and um, we also can't be, because you mentioned this particular issue of schools, we can't be sort of scared of the culture as corrupt as it is. And our forebears in the faith weren't. Right? St. Paul in First Corinthians quotes Menander, who's a comic playwright. Greek comic player, right? He's sort of conversant in this literature. So he does not endorse its values, right? That it was communicating. Quite the opposite. The sexual morality, all of those things, right? The pagan gods and the he is a Jewish person was not keen on any of that, right? But he was conversant in it. When there was something good in it, he could pull that out and use it to try to make a point, mm -hmm. right, to the people who were immersed in that culture. Mm -hmm. And he could explain where it was wrong. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I obviously don't know Danish culture all that well, but I know back in the 80s and early 90s in the United States, the response to the beginnings of cultural decline way before it got where it is now was for uh, most of sort of evangelical Christians in the U S to sort of silo themselves. Right. So we're going to just opt out. Right. And we're going to make our own, you know, not quite as good Christian rock music and not quite as good Christian TV shows and not quite as good Christian movies. Right. Um, 
And the reason they were always not quite as good is that they weren't actually sort of positively Christian. Like they weren't producing great works of Christian art. They were just sort of producing G-rated, inoffensive, (laughs) sort of pap. Um, (laughs) um, I think that does every, I think that does everyone a disservice. It does Christianity a disservice. It does those kids a disservice. Um, I think I think we need to kind of step up on having interactions and say, okay, this is what you got taught in school today. Well, let's talk about that. You think that's right? You know, <laughs> like what are they assuming there? Well, is it this other thing also true? Right. And having those kinds of discussions with each other, with our kids, um, I think puts us all in a in a better stead because our goal isn't. And especially when we're talking about people we love, right? And our kids and stuff. Our primary goal is I want them to be safe and protected, right? And not destroyed by this. We're kind of on the defensive. But our goal as Christians has to be more on the offensive. Mm -hmm. Has to be, you know, I need to equip my kid to talk to the other kids in his class at school and help them see the problems with this. And maybe after a few of them do, they can start changing the culture in that classroom, <laughs> right? And start, you know, and and actually try to move things the other way. I I am not enough of an optimist to think that if we start doing that at the small level, we'll stop the current cultural collapse and change. I'm just kind of pessimistic by bent. I'm Gen X. That's how we are. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's going to happen anyway. But I think we can create little islands, right, of sort of Christianity and sanity and decency and compassion, right, within that, you know, um, that will help us and a lot of other people weather it in a much healthier and coming out the other side, give us more influence on what comes next. Because St. Augustine's City of God had a pretty big influence on what came next for Western Europe. <laughs> right after the Western half of the empire collapsed. Yeah. Um, and I think I think we can do that too, looking down the, the road. Yeah, which I guess was a certain level of acceptance of things are moving in the direction that they're moving and God is in control. And I I, I think you said early on, like the worst thing that God can do is to give us what we think we want. Uh, yeah. uh, so, so letting, not assuming that I know what's best. Um, but when you said civilizations rise and fall, but the city of God remains standing, then what I was thinking as well as like, and the man of God remains standing, even yeah. when civilizations rise and fall. And, you know, this, the, the, the inspiration of the martyrs of not being afraid of death, uh, of being able to, you know, hold the course irrespective of, of what is coming. Uh, it's just such a massive inspiration. Um, the, and, and, and it's helped me to see as well, like this, the way that we, the Christian faith brings in everything that's good. <laughs> and there is lots of good out there as yeah. well. Um, I, I think I also grew up with this idea that outside of Christ, everything is just total depravity. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and, yeah, yeah. And and so not, and, and that also then leads you, oh, these people are totally depraved. Of course, right? And then, well, then, then I, the only hope is that I tell them that they are sinners and they have to come to Christ or something like that, which is obviously not something that makes you on friendly terms with them. Yeah. So, 
So having that attitude with my, you know, I started with my wife, but then also with my, with, with Christian men, Christian friends. Uh, and then I, I feel like I need to be a little bit more careful in how I do it as I'm learning, you know, the art of, of loving uh, to, to um, start. The easiest thing is to start loving people who are far away from me and and not use as much time and energy on loving the people that are closest to me as well right and so i feel like by switching yeah. that around actually be a little bit more careful in loving the people who are further away have a little bit more boundaries there that 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 but but then really work on the foundation which is these the innermost layers of this identity that you're talking about in the rituals that i'm participating in them centering that around the pattern of reality you know existence of of a life with god um that that seems to be um, yeah mm-hmm. So, and, and yeah, and having, having the humility always to admit that none of us has all the right answers, you know, I'm not coming in as the expert, right? So now I'm going to come in and I'm going to fix my family, right? And I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to put this all right. And I'm going to go to my workplace and I'm going to fix my workplace because I get it. <laughs> right? And I have all the, you know, um, but it's playing that role. Right. Playing the role within the family, doing that correctly, playing that role within the workplace. Right. And doing that, doing that as a Christian and doing that with all our heart, um, not sort of trying to manage it or. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. I have not read City of God, so that's going to really get to go into the reading list. Thank you. I believe it's a big one to read. So thanks a lot for that one. It's pretty um, thick, too. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, it's 800 pages. I, I yeah, recall. it's but definitely, definitely worth it. There's I mean, there's gold all through it. Yeah. And so. and I, I've had, you know, I think when you come into the Orthodox faith, then a lot of us kind of like get this feeling like, oh, yeah, Augustine, no, he's like the Western guy, like we stay away from him or something like that but i'm really realizing like no there's there's it's it's a necessary part of our of our understanding as well yeah. uh, and he is a saint yeah. in the Orthodox church yeah. yeah and and part of that is part of that's a bad way of reading the there, there's this there's this bad tendency i think and i hope it's mostly online where some folks who have come out of protestantism into the orthodox church do this sola patristica thing where it's like, okay, we don't read the Bible anymore because we're not Protestants. We're just going to read church fathers and we're going to like proof text them mm-hmm. and <laughs> like throw out quotes. And so when they see that, oh, St. Augustine on some significant points in some of his works disagrees with these other fathers. So therefore he must be just all bad, yeah. right? It's sort of like saying some book must not be canonical, right? <laughs> like. So he's not in our in our canon of of uh, fathers anymore. But that's not really how the fathers work of the church. Because while they do a lot better job of fulfilling their role than I do fulfilling mine, they are still human, and no individual one of them has all the answers either. That's why we have lots and lots of church fathers who are having this discussion and these different perspectives. Good. Father Stephen Young, thank you so much for your time uh, and inputs. Uh, it was a real pleasure to to help you. Um, if you haven't read uh, God is Man of War and also the Religion of the Apostles, I think uh, are, are two essential books for me that's helped to create a, a deeper understanding of the Orthodox faith. Uh, really going deep down into uh, the roots of 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 the 
of, of um, the way that we practice our religion and definitely Lord of Spirits. I think for so many people, you know, I was a part of the Jordan Peterson guys who came in and experienced Jonathan, Jonathan Peugeot and came into Orthodoxy. That's been a re- massive part of me understanding what is this ancient church <laughs> and set of rituals that I'm getting into that was extremely exotic and strange uh, when I first came into it. And um, it's been incredibly valuable to have someone who's been laying that out for me in a way that I can understand it. So uh, thank you thank to you, you and Father Father Damick as well. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Good. Thank you very much.